Welcome back to this mini course on preaching. In the first session, we looked at the purpose of preaching, which is helpful because we can get into a rut. We know what a sermon is. We hear a lot of sermons. We may even have preached many sermons, but we don't always think of what we're trying to get across or accomplish when we preach. And so we tried to focus on that. Like, what are we going after? What's the motivation? All those kinds of things. In this session, we're going to talk about um, the actual like art of crafting a sermon. So how do you craft a sermon? And I'll just say before we even begin, that's a very subjective thing. You could talk to 100 different preachers about how to create a sermon, and you'll get 100 different answers. You could probably talk to the same preacher on 100 different weeks and get a different sense of how they craft that sermon. This is subjective. There's no uh, right way to do it, but I'm going to guide you through some uh, things to think about with it. I'll share some of what I do as I uh, craft my sermons. Um, and the whole idea is just trying to get this familiarity in the lay of the land so that as you sit down to craft your sermons, you kind of have some categories and some things to process as you do. First thing that I want to say, and, and this is going to be a theme uh, throughout everything I ever do, I hope, is um, we need to be praying as we craft our sermons. That is so vital. Pray as you craft your sermon. The whole, th- the whole reality is that prayer is so vital to deepen ourselves as human beings and as preachers. If we're going to preach, we need to be deepening ourselves through prayer on a regular basis. We talked about that in the last session, and I want to keep harping on it because it's so important. You're a different kind of a preacher. You're a different kind of a person if you spend time with God regularly. And so that idea of just deepening, deepening yourself by time spent with God in prayer is so important. And as you sit down to craft a sermon, make sure that is so central and prominent in your preparation crafting processes. Um, The second thought there is that prayer is not only vital for ourselves and our deepening, it's also vital like the idea of, of a Saturday night or a Sunday morning is you're, you're kind of getting the last bits on your sermon, your last bit of prep. Um, prayer is so vital in that setting because the idea of like leading up to the moment we preach, you can see everything that's kind of come together. And often for myself, at least it's like, well, I guess this is what I came up with uh, for my sermon. And, and there's that sense of, Lord, I need you. And there's this sense of our desperation for God, our need for him. If this is going to have any impact, if this is going to do anything for the kingdom, if this is going to be what, what um, I believe, God, you want it to be in this moment for these people, Lord, I need you to work through this. Um, now, crafting is so much, bi- or praying is so much bigger than that, um, but really just begging the spirit to work through our sermons. Um, it's not us that's doing it. It's not going to be our cleverness. It's not going to be how well-prepared or how intellectual or academic or accurate or persuasive our sermon is. It's going to be God himself working. And so praying to deepen ourselves, praying in that moment leading up to the sermon delivery. But the the big thing that I want us to see is prayer through the entire process as well. Um, Not just waiting for the desperate plea on Saturday night, Sunday morning, um, but creating a rhythm where we're just asking God for wisdom, for direction, for inspiration all week long. Charles Spurgeon said, Texts will often refuse to reveal their treasure till you open them with the key of prayer. The closet is the best study. The commentators are good instructors, but the author himself is far better, and prayer makes a direct appeal to him and enlists him in our cause. I love this statement from Spurgeon because it pulls us back to uh, the idea that we, we are so dependent on God to, to even understand what he's saying. Um, but also just that sense of if we really want to know this passage, if we want to if we want to understand like what we're trying to speak on God's behalf, we've got to be in prayer with God. So don't waste your study by doing it prayerlessly. 
um, take your time to be praying um, before you open the word, as you open the word, as you're crafting your thoughts, as you're thinking through your delivery, uh, be in prayer. People can tell when we spent time in the Lord's presence before we come and talk to them about it. So I always want to keep pulling us back to pray. Second thing I want to say about prayer or about a sermon prep is don't lose sight of who it is that you're preaching to. So this is really important. Uh, the Bible was written uh, a long time ago to people that are not us in different cultures over many different times. And, um, but we are preaching. Our call is to take that word that is timeless, but was contextually delivered and preach that word to specific people that exist now that are here in our community. And so it's super important for us. Our whole task is taking the truth of God and delivering it to a specific set of people. So, so what I often do is I'll take out like a mental inventory uh, as I'm prepping to preach of the kinds of people that I'm going to be preaching to. Okay. So there's married people and single people, right? There's people that have kids and that don't. There's young and there's old, there's male and there's female, there's straight people and gay people, rich people and poor people. There's an ethnic diversity um, when I preach. And so thinking through these different kinds of people as I'm prepping will help me see like, is this going to speak to that kind of person or not? Is there someone I'm, I'm leaving out here? Is there someone I'm assuming that they'll, they're either, uh, that's the only kind of person that's going to be there, or maybe I'm, I'm assuming they won't be there. Um, and, and how can I best shape my words, not just, just to give everybody a sense of like hearing what they want to hear, but shape my words in such a way that I'm speaking God's word as directly as I can um, to that kind of a person. In addition to those kinds of things, there's people that are new to the faith and there's people that have been saints their entire lives. Um, there's people that are coming in that Sunday on a spiritual high and, and I want to speak to them and, and address them. There's also people that have been weighed down by sin or by doubt. There's some people that's like, this is their first Sunday in church. And there's other people that this is going to be their last Sunday in church. And so all these things are worth considering. Um, and then there's the political side, right? There's people who are politically engaged or politically disillusioned. Um, people who are liberal, people who are conservative, people who are outspoken, people who are quiet, people who are legalistic, people who are licentious. All these things um, just trying to weigh, okay, how is this going to sound to them? How, how Like, is there, a, is there a kind of person that I really do need to address here? And that is... Um, a great practice across the board. But as you look through different passages, thinking through the specifics of your passage, you might find, um, I kind of need to, maybe I need to preach more this week to one type of person than another, you know? And, th- and that's always a fine choice to make. Like maybe maybe I'm speaking more to parents in this week than, than not. Maybe I'm speaking more to rich people um, th- than I am to poor people here or vice versa. Um, but recognizing that even when we do, we can focus on a certain kind of person but recognizing everyone else is listening along too. And that's especially true um, these days when things are live streamed and all those kinds of things. And so um, just kind of seeing like there's uh, a lot of people that are going to be there. So try not to neglect uh, different kinds of people in the long run, at least. Um, I, I find as a, as a male preacher, it's easy for me to use um, illustrations that might connect more with the male audience. And I've got to think more through um, how am I going to connect with the women in the church? I, even as simple as, um, am I quoting only men or, or am I sometimes quoting women as well? Um, uh, you know, what, who are the heroes in all of my stories? Those kinds of things. And so thinking through how does that um, address the different kinds of people um, that I'm talking to um, is really important, whether it's male-female dynamics, rich-poor dynamics, um, um, eth- considering ethnic diversity. Are all, my, are all my quotations from white people, are all my commentators that I'm reading um, from white people? I need to uh, build a diversity in, in my study habits and who I'm learning from and who I'm interacting with so that I can um, be able to connect as best as I can uh, with with the people that are um, actually going to be there. 
One, one, one additional thought here. Uh, Frank Thomas um, has this great book uh, that I mentioned last time. It's called They Like to Never Quit Praising God. And um, he, he talks about the emotional context of a gathering. So a specific gathering, he says, might have like an actual emotional context. And, um, and so when we address people and we preach, being sensitive to that, the, the emotional field, like that, sometimes that's more important, he says, than saying the right words in a given time. So consider this. Sometimes there's a significant event in the, the world or the country or, or maybe in our specific community that might shape the way people are feeling coming in. Um, still to this day, uh, preaching on September 11th is a, is a unique thing and people have a sense, uh, an emotional sense as they come into that sermon. It doesn't mean you have to talk about it necessarily, but just being aware of where people are coming in. Um, as we've been praying and prepping our sermons, are we getting a sense of like, man, people are just really weary this week. I'm talking to so many people that are beat down or, or, um, or, or you know, or like this has been an awesome week. People are, people are thriving now or whatever it is. Um, just giving a sense of like, where are my people at? The people I'm going to address. And so keeping that in mind as we prep is a really good thing to do. Um, and I think that the biggest piece with this whole thing, considering who we're talking to, it's asking God, okay, Lord, you wrote these words so long ago. What do you want to say today? through these words, uh, your scripture, what do you want to say today with through these words to these specific people? And how will you guide me into that? And just asking God to guide us in that is so important. Uh, Frank Thomas suggests saying a prayer like this, God, how do you want the gospel to help your people grow this week? What are the real needs in the fellowship or in the world that this biblical text or sermon idea could address? God, how is it that you desire to speak to your people? That's a great question to ask as we process. So moving on, we're going to be prayerful. We're going to consider who we're preaching to. We also want to let scripture lead our crafting process. Now, this may or may not fit uh, the style of preaching that you're used to. Um, I think it's very important. It is my opinion is that this is very important. Um, because certainly when we're interpreting the Bible, we need to let the, the Bible interpret, uh, scripture lead the way in our interpretation of it. We want to see what the text does say and what it doesn't say. Um, but what I find, even though crafting a sermon, you're looking at a specific group of people and you are trying to do, you're not just trying to like regurgitate the exact same thing that the biblical author said. You're crafting a presentation of that passage. But I think it's very important still um, that we leave our agendas on the back burner, uh, the things that I would like to say, the things that I really feel like these people need, and allow scripture to do um, most of the work in leading our crafting process. At my conviction that comes from this thought, people need a word from the Lord more than they will ever need a word from me. I think that is deeply true, and it's a good uh, reminder for us. Now, I think God puts things on our hearts to say. I think that's a beautiful thing, but we don't want to forget that, like, I'm not the good shepherd. I'm not the true counselor, right? I am a shepherd. I am a counselor, but I am not um, Jesus. And, and I, so a word from God um, is super important. And even when God puts a message on our hearts that we want to deliver to them, we still need to let uh, the word of God direct it, let him direct it, I think, through his word often. So I don't think that every sermon has to be like a strict exposition of a single passage, um, but that's my default is I'm going to pick a text and I'm going to let that drive what this message is going to be. I'm going to say things about it and I'm going to address it to the context that we're in. But I like to let the passage itself drive. Different people do different things, um, but that's my conviction and how I do things. Um, for me, in almost every case, I want to draw the sermon out of a specific scriptural text. It's kind of like, on, on one hand, I don't, I don't trust myself to just grab a verse here, grab a verse there, stitch together something that's going to really, um, I mean, it's all scripture, but I'm, I would be concerned about my biases. I'd be concerned about my emphases. I'd be concerned about my 
purposes in doing it. I'm not sure if this passage is going to preach well enough, so I'm going to piece something together. I mean, there's times for that, but I, I am just hesitant. I don't trust myself with it all the way. And so I like the idea of um, letting scripture drive as much as possible, not just the content of the sermon, but even our sermon prep process, letting it kind of suggest where to go. So David Helm wrote a great book on expositional preaching. Um, He defines expositional preaching as an endeavor to bring out of scripture what is there, to never thrust in a text what the Holy Spirit didn't put there, and to do so from a particular text in ways that rightly humble the listener, exalt the Savior, and promote holiness in the lives of those present. A little bit... uh, clinical perhaps, uh, but I like the idea of just bringing out of the text what's already there. Um, And so letting that shape, like what are the arguments that the author of this text is making? What's his emphasis? What's his point? Why was this written? Why did the people it was written to need to hear this? And kind of letting that shape um, how I'm understanding the passage and therefore uh, what it is that I'm trying to deliver uh, to my people. Um, it's, It's really easy. I think bottom line for me, it's really easy to make a passage of scripture, a proof text for something that I want to say. Um, so David Helm, he talks about how um, we, we don't want to miss that primary point of a passage. Um, there's a lot of possible applications, but we can't let that overshadow the primary point of the text. Um, and so the whole, the whole point of this is like, um, what is the Spirit trying to do through this passage? What is he saying here? And, and let me try to set my agenda aside. He says it memorably like this. David Helm says, some preachers use the Bible the way a drunk uses a lamppost, more for support than for illumination. And I love that. You can just picture a drunk guy uh, leaning against a lamppost. He's not using it for the light. He's just using it to hold himself up. And, uh, and he's saying that's how we can be with scripture. Um, uh, kind of a memorable way to think about it. Um, the word of God's not there to support something that I want to say. And often it's easy to say, okay, I mean, this is a concept that will really preach well. What's a verse that kind of says that? And then we make the sermon kind of about our point. I just think it's so, so important to keep coming back um, and, and letting scripture lead the way. Mark Allen Powell says it like this, to some extent, your job may be to stay out of the way and allow the story to do what it can do better than you can. If you've come increasingly to think of preaching as the performance of scripture, if we want to preach sermons that will impact people's lives, we should get in the habit of first looking for the story that is being told in any text and then looking for ways of retelling that story so that it can add, uh, do a lot of the transformational work for us. And so he's saying, even in the non-narrative parts of scripture, um, there's a story. You know, Paul wrote this letter to these people for this reason. There's a story behind that. So let that story do the, do the work and, and guide our preparation process. So all this, I think, is just a way of like, man, scripture is going to be primary in the sermons that we create. Fourth thing I want to say here is uh, we want to consider how uh, we as the preachers and they, the congregation, are going to relate to the passage. And, and when I say consider that, I mean, just be aware of some of these dynamics. Um, th- there is like, um, Mark Allen Powell has this great book uh, where he, he talks about what do they hear? That's the idea. And he says, there's often a difference between the way the pastor relates himself to the passage and what the people in the pews uh, relate to. So he says this, first read the biblical story, ask yourself what the story means, and then consciously identify the character with whom you have empathized. If this story were being performed on the stage of your life, so to speak, this is the character you would most naturally seek to play. This is the role of which you tend to identify. But now, this may be the more important part, he says, read the story again, trying out for a different role. Cast the story differently in your mind. Force yourself to empathize with a different character and to experience the story from that character's point of view. 
Inevitably, this leads to new perceptions, ones that you may have missed, but that might be readily available and meaningful to your parishioners. So the idea that he's saying here is um, basically he kind of makes the point that actually preachers, when, when they're preaching a passage about Jesus and the disciples, pastors tend to identify with Jesus uh, as the character. That's like more common. But uh, people listening to the sermon uh, tend to identify more with the disciples, not with Jesus as primarily. And so he's saying even just the assumptions we make about like who we're connecting to in a story, be aware of that and think through, like try to put yourself in different roles. What would this have been like for the disciples? What would this have been like for that paralyzed man or whomever? Um, and kind of like ask the question, how, how are different people going to latch on? How are different people going to relate? Um, who's going to resonate with what aspect of this whole thing? Um, and so doing that, just we still like we want to keep our sermon focused, um, but it helps us to kind of pick a point of view and kind of see more of what's in that passage. Um, and really, I think that's important too. the idea of like kind of identifying with a point of view in a, in a passage or a story, because as much as possible, we want to be helping people to experience the passage rather than simply learning from it. We really aren't trying to just explain the Bible to people. We want people to experience the Bible, to let the Bible do things um, to them, to experience it actually, maximizing the inherent power in a passage. And a lot of that just comes from stepping out of the way, um, framing the sermon in a way that's going to help people experience it as profoundly as we can. Jay Adams says, to experience an event in preaching is to enter into that event so fully that the emotions appropriate to that event are felt, just as if one were actually going through it. When a preacher says what he or she relate, uh, uh, what he or she relates in such a way that he or she stimulates one or more of the five senses, thus triggering emotion, then the listener may be said to experience the event. In that way, the event will become real to him or her, which means it has become concretized or personalized, memorable, and in the fullest sense of the word, understandable. His whole point there is just saying, um, do what we can to help people experience it. I'm always trying to help people understand uh, the Bible itself. Um, and I want to try to demonstrate as much as I can. This is our next point. Demonstrating as much as I can a loving engagement with Scripture. I, I want them to not just think, oh, that was a cool sermon. I want them to get a sense of like what it was like for me to wrestle with the passage um, and model for them as much as I can healthy habits of relating to Scripture and wrestling with it. Um, and so really, like if we're showing a loving interaction with scripture, we're helping them see this isn't just me and my opinion, right? I'm trying to point them to, um, sure, the things that I say are great, but like, this is what the word of God says. Here's where I'm pulling this from the word of God. We want them to see that that is where the actual authority comes. It's not about my clever wisdom. John Piper warns it like this. He says, our, our authority as preachers sent by God rises and falls with our manifest allegiance to the text of scripture. Uh, he says, I say manifest because there are so many preachers who say they're doing exposition when they do not ground their assertions explicitly, manifestly in the text. They don't show their people clearly that the assertions of their preaching are coming from specific readable words of scripture that the people can see for themselves. So I think a lot of this is just wanting to like model good Bible study methods for people um, so they can learn to dive into scripture for themselves. I want the, them to see and understand that the reason I feel strongly about this is because this is what God says to his people uh, in his word. And we want them to see that for themselves. Often it's great if, if people are still bringing their Bibles to encourage them to open it. I love when people do that. Um, I also always put the words on the screen because people don't always have their Bibles. And um, for people that are new to church, um, unchurched, um, to whatever extent, it it's, can be really off-putting to like not know what's going on. So it feels like a courtesy to put it up there. Either way, I'm trying to help them see this is what the passage says. Here's what I'm drawing uh, that from. 
Um, it doesn't mean we have to like call attention to specific like hermeneutics or things like that, um, but we do want to like model good hermeneutics, good Bible interpretation. We want to see how people see the meaning of the passage for themselves. Like, if if you found a truth in the passage, like show them how and where and why. Like, how does it all fit together? Where does it come from? And I think as we do that, we help people learn to uh, figure out for themselves how they can do that as well. I think a, a really important point here that we often miss is we want to help people actually be able to enjoy the Bible. Um, that that's a really overlooked. Um, concept, but just really enjoying the Bible, not just reading it because we should, or not just like, well, I guess we got to listen to the Bible as the pastor preaches, but no, we want to um, help people enjoy it. And that means we're going to have to figure out, learn how to enjoy it ourselves, right? Um, it, it's it's like, we, we really just like, if we just see it as this inconvenient authority, um, like, oh man, I guess, you know, the Bible just says it, so we got to do it. If we see it that way, man, that's going to flow down to the people. But if we're like, man, God's word is fascinating. God's word speaks in a way that's relevant to me today. God's word opened my eyes to this this week. I had this realization as I was praying and reading the word of God. Those kinds of things model something. Um, and, and so like enjoying scripture in public is a beautiful thing. Um, and it's great for the people that we get to preach to, to be exposed to that. All right. Another uh, key point is you're crafting your sermon. All these things we're keeping an eye on. Um, we want to keep a, a clear focus um, on the trajectory of our sermon, like watching how our sermon is focused in the trajectory that we're giving to the whole thing. Um, it, it's easy, especially when you're newer to preaching, it's easy for your sermon to be just a list of points that you want to make um, or, or just a list of points that you see the passage making. Um, and that tends to be less effective. Now I say this and there's exceptions to um, all of it. Supposedly the Great Awakening came about as Jonathan Edwards was preaching these monotone, theologically rich um, sermons and it was just the spirit of God overwhelming everybody. Um, I suspect that he was probably more compelling than some people have made him out to be. Um, but definitely the, 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 the point is, yes, the spirit of God moves however he wants, but let's also be as compelling as we can. And if we're just listing a bunch of points, that's not a very powerful sermon. Try to find a heart of the passage and then begin asking, like, how am I going to guide people to an experience of that passage that's cohesive? Not just a list of things, um, but really directing them toward the whole thing. So in that, uh, in that, the interest of that, Glenn Packiam, he has three big questions that he uses to kind of form a cohesive thread for the sermon. So he, he asks these three questions and kind of answers them in the course of each sermon. First of all, what is the longing we have, but we can't name? And then he says, what's the fear that we have that we can't face? What's the question that we can't shake? And so he's trying to, trying to give you like a sense of like, looking at these three questions, is there something here that you can kind of help people identify with and lead them through this passage on a specific trajectory? I think that can be helpful. I don't think every sermon should fit into that. Um, but I think that's a helpful way of looking at it. Um, I would say that whatever we land on is like the point of my sermon, we should be able to articulate that in like a single memorable statement. If you're having trouble, trouble summarizing your sermon, the point of your sermon in a sentence, um, you probably are not focused enough in what you're trying to say. It probably means you don't understand your passage well enough, and it almost for sure means you don't have a good enough sense of your sermon and what you're trying to accomplish when you're up there. So trying to find a single sentence that's that's even somewhat memorable, not like people are going to memorize it, but just something that even you can keep in mind as you're preaching really helps you to focus the whole thing. Um, we don't want to confuse people. We can have a bunch of minor points, right? But they need to be in service to a bigger point. 
draw as much or as little attention to the sentence itself if you want to in your sermon. Like, I don't think the point is making sure people um, memorize it, but we just want to make sure if I'm fuzzy on what the sermon's about, everyone else is going to be really fuzzy too. Um, and so that's that's the whole thing. It gives us some self-control in what we present and what we leave out and where we're focusing. And um, I think it's really important to kind of stay focused with the whole thing. Now, another aspect of this idea of giving it like a trajectory is um, you can use uh, concepts like plot or suspense in your sermon. Um, and maybe that sounds like those, we associate those with fiction, um, but they're just narrative things that the Bible itself uses. The idea of plot, or the idea of suspense can help kind of engage people in the whole thing. Um, so like if you start with one of Glenn Packham's questions about like a fear that we can't name or whatever or can't face, um, it, you know, there's some tension, there's some suspense that kind of comes with bringing that fear up and acknowledging it, but then trying to address it on some level. Um, and so that, that kind of can give you an arc with the whole thing. Um, Frank Thomas says, he says, uh, plot is developed when the complication gets introduced and suspense is added to the drama, meaning like the, things are good in a story, right? But then there's something that complicates that whole thing. So the plot comes when the complication comes and there's suspense added to the drama. Suspense spurs the listener through growing excitement and interest to seek equilibrium when confronted with the complication. The complication is the introduction of situations, circumstances, or facts that throw the listener off balance, cause a feeling of anxiety or uneasiness. The human, the her, human personality naturally seeks balance, stability, and equilibrium, and it is the management of this anxiety that keeps the listener engaged. Suspense is necessary for people to listen. So he's saying, um, you know, it's it's a great technique and it helps people stay engaged listening when we can kind of. Um, present some good thing, uh, but then bring some kind of tension or suspense into that that then gets resolved or addressed over the course of the sermon. He says, uh, the natural human need for equilibrium causes people to intensely invest in the sermon, looking for resolution of the percentage suspense. When suspense is properly planned and focused, the sermonic design resolves the suspense with the gospel. People experience a sense of resolution that makes the ser- sermon work the har- worth the hard work of listening. The sermon raises suspense, names it, and helps people experience it, then resolves suspense in light of the gospel. I think that's a great way to say it. Any any passage, any sermon really could get into that mode of here's something that's wrong with the world or with me, um, uh, and uh, and then we name it, we, we address it, and then we show this gets resolved with the gospel, and here's how. It's a beautiful way to approach um, really probably any passage in scripture. Now, you might use a whole frame uh, around which you structure your sermon. So for Frank Thomas, his four-part dramatic frame is first there's a situation, uh, then there's a complication, then there's a resolution, and then there's a celebration. So in the situation, he's asking, like, what's happening in our world or in the text? So he's laying the groundwork, setting the scene. That's a situation. Then the complication comes in. What makes the situation difficult or impossible? There's tension and suspense that comes to that, as he said. Then there's resolution, uh, the gospel solving the difficulty of the whole thing. And then there's celebration, which is about how do we respond to that whole thing with joy. So that's a great uh, four-part frame. It may be just what you need in prepping all of your sermons or one of your sermons or something, um, but just giving you a sense of like, you could do those four things, situation, complication, resolution, celebration, and you might be able to see how what the passage is getting at fits really nicely into those four categories. Um, Anne Lee Stanley has a, a different kind of four-part checklist approach. Um, his is information, motivation, application, and inspiration. They're similar, actually. Um, information. What do people need to know? All right. 
then he asks motivation. Why do they need to know it? So we're going to try to motivate them, not just toward what's they need to know about. This is why you need to know that. Then he goes into application. What do they need to do? How are we going to respond to it? And then inspiration. Why do they need to do it? So you can see the what, why, what, why. Information, what do they need to know? Motivation, why do they need to know it? Application, what do they need to do? Inspiration, why do they need to do it? He's just trying to give a sense of like movement in his sermons. Um, and there's some clever wordplay there. Um, the consummate pastor, consummate preacher. Um, but trying to get that sense of information, motivation, application, inspiration, moving people along a trajectory can help you kind of focus your sermon, stay fixed on one thing that you're moving towards can be a really helpful thing. Okay, so that's, you know, kind of maybe there's a trajectory as you're planning your sermon out, crafting it. Um, Another thing I would say that as you're crafting your sermon, and often this is the easy thing to overlook accidentally, um, but I would say try to dedicate time to crafting your introduction and your conclusion. Sometimes when uh, my week's been really hectic and I'm trying to prep my sermon, sometimes I get to a point where I kind of leave that intro section blank and then I'm forced to, like, as I'm, you know, we're singing worship songs before I get up to preach, I'm like, boy, how am I going to introduce this? You know, and sometimes I have just gotten up there and open your Bible to this passage. Here's how he starts. And that's honestly fine. You know, it's not like this whole thing is is some uh, attempt for us to wow everybody. Um, the Word of God is the most important thing. But it is, it can be really helpful to craft a good introduction. Um, it kind of like convinces people that they need to hear what we're going to preach. And people are there because they want to listen, but helping to draw them in, doing them doing them the service of kind of finding some way to engage them or to orient them to what you're about to do that kind of helps them to lean in a bit, puts things on the right foot, um, can be really helpful. Andy Stanley says, like, start by assuming that people have no interest in the point that you're about to make. And your job is to kind of build that interest from scratch. Um, Frank Thomas suggests using language that engages people and invites them to invest themselves in the sermon. Um, I would just say it doesn't have to be profound, but the beginning is a very important part of your sermon. So just be sure to give it some thought at least. And similarly with the conclusion, a good good conclusion lands the plane, so to speak, ties up loose ends. Um, I have often come to the end of a sermon and haven't thought well enough through how I'm going to end it. And I find myself just kind of rambling and repeating things. And, um, and it's like, boy, just land the plane. Let's just be done with this whole thing. I, I said some good things here. How do I tie this off? And I'm having a hard time trying to dismount from the whole thing. Um, and so it's, it's really frustrating, I think, for people when a preacher doesn't know how to end the whole thing. So you could summarize what you've said. You might call people to a certain action. You might end it with like a thought or maybe a story that cements the main point. But I would just say, if you don't give thought to how you're going to end, don't expect it to go smoothly. Um, it's, it's tricky. Sometimes it comes to you in the moment and you're like, this is how I'll do it. Um, but often you just find yourself kind of flailing. And um, I've unnecessarily lengthened plenty of sermons um, by not thinking through the conclusion well enough. So very helpful to have a dismount point in mind, a landing spot on the whole thing. Another thing that you might overlook, it depends on your personality and what your experience with preaching has been, um, but it's important to spend time on illustrations. Now, again, like it's not like the Bible says, you know, when you preach a sermon, make sure you give illustrations. But what we do find is that the Bible is full of illustrations. Uh, Jesus taught in a lot of parables. Um, many, many passages in scripture use uh, imagery, metaphors, um, uh, word pictures, comparisons. All these things are present throughout scripture. So it's modeled for us. Um, and, and illustrations kind of, they give people a, 
a, a mental break in a way, right? If we're going hard explaining a passage, we're talking about theology, we're talking about life struggles or something, you almost give them a little break for a minute uh, in their brain to kind of switch gears and it gives them a little bit of rest. It gives them an opportunity to, um, you know, re-engage uh, with people. Uh, so like a story or a sermon feels different than the, like the meat of our sermon. So, you know, just kind of breathe for a second with that whole thing. Um, you, you can also, I, I try to pay attention to like how my illustrations are spaced throughout my sermon. You know, sometimes I just, how it ties in and how it works. I come up with maybe three good illustrations and they're all in the first 10 minutes of my sermon. And then I've got gaps in the back half of my sermon. Um, it can be tricky to spread those things out, but think through how is this going to sound? Are, are these three illustrations going to be effective piled up like this? Or would it be better to find a way to either move them around or find different illustrations to include later um, in my sermon? And so um, the other thing too is people, they say that people's attention spans are less than 10 minutes. Um, I preach for 30 minutes typically when I preach, sometimes a little bit longer than that. And so spacing it out, what it can do, if you space out an illustration, it almost offers like an on-ramp mid-sermon back into the point you're trying to make. So when people kind of clue out, you kind of can catch their attention with an illustration and help them come back to uh, what it is that you're talking about. Of course, on the, the other side of that is that illustrations like help our message come alive and become more relatable to people. I think that's exactly what Jesus was doing with his parables. He's helping it come alive for people. He's helping people relate to the things. Um, And it's not always easy uh, to come up with illustrations. Sometimes they just really come to you and it's great. Sometimes you have a life story. Sometimes you have something you've seen or experienced or thought about or or saw in the news or watched on a show or something like that. Um, But sometimes you have to really sit and kind of ponder like, man, how could I illustrate this? What could I do that would um, not just distract, not just be funny, not just um, be an illustration for illustration's sake, but what would really help people engage with this concept? Charles Spurgeon, Spurgeon, writing forever ago, said, set yourself the task of making illustrations. Try to make comparisons from the things round about you. I think it will be well sometimes to shut the door of your study and say to yourself, I will not go, I will not go out of this room until I have made at least a half a dozen good illustrations. At any rate, do make up your mind that you will attract and interest the people by the way in which you set the gospel before them. Half the battle lies in making the attempt. Do try with all your might to get the power to see a parable, a simile, an illustration, wherever it may be seen. For to a great extent, this is one of the most important qualifications of the man who is to be a public speaker, and especially of the man who is to be an efficient preacher of the gospel of Christ. If the Lord Jesus made such frequent use of parables, it must be right for us to do the same. I I like the idea that that Spurgeon says of like, just shut the door to the room and like, even think about what's in the room itself. Um, think about concepts and just say, I'm not leaving until I come up with several things that could work well here. Um, it's just when time crunches, I don't always spend the time on this that I should. Um, but it, it really does help things come alive when we think how to illustrate them well. But now I want to say before I move on from this idea of making illustrations, I do want to give a few warnings um, about pitfalls that we could fall into in creating illustrations. The first thing I want to say, um, be sure that the illustration actually ties to the point that you're making. Um, I've found like sometimes I've used a good story, but it doesn't actually tie in, uh, at least not obviously so, or it's it's tricky uh, to tie it in. So that makes it like less helpful. And so I would say a good story, it really actually weakens your sermon if the congregation like loves the story but doesn't see how it supports the arguments of my sermon. So 
with each illustration, ask like, does this help make my sermon better or make this point more memorable? And how so? Um, if it doesn't really work with your sermon, don't try to force it. And it only is uh, you weakening the thing. And people can kind of tell, like, I think you just wanted to tell that story. Um, and it doesn't really fit with the whole thing. Um, don't, don't let a single illustration eat up more of your sermon than it should. I've certainly used illustrations that, man, it takes me five, seven minutes to explain this whole thing. And it's like, boy, that's a huge chunk of my sermon. Now that might be an intentional point. You might have like a a metaphor or a parable that's kind of the heart of your sermon, but be careful not to let, if it takes a ton of explanation to get there, um, like it could be a distraction. And so being careful that like, you don't need too much explanation for that particular illustration. Um, I would say, and this is subjective, but I would say that when you're sharing personal stories, be careful not to make yourself always the hero of the stories that you're telling. Um, I think we should be willing to share stories in which we've messed up or we had to learn a lesson. Um, We don't want to give the impression and we certainly don't want to live the reality that like, I think I'm always the hero of this. Um, It's not helpful. It's not good. It's not a good look. It's not a good feel. It models the wrong thing. It creates the wrong kind of culture. So all of that, just like when you share a personal story, be careful. Like don't throw your family or your friends under the bus. Don't throw fellow church leaders under the bus. Um, Don't throw church members under the bus. Like honoring the people um, that that we are interacting with, even as we do try to open up our lives to the people that we're interacting with is, is so important. And so, um, just keeping an eye on all that stuff. Um, does the, does the illustration actually fit? Is it a good illustration for this? Um, am I saying too much? Uh, those are all things to consider in the whole thing. All right. A couple more things. Um, this is like second to last. I want to say, be sure as we craft your sermon, be sure the gospel shines through in every sermon. We want the gospel to shine in every sermon. So now I, I, I don't think this is controversial, but I don't believe that every passage in scripture is specifically delivering the gospel. But I do think that the, that the gospel speaks to everything in every passage. Okay, so I think we're, we're drawing in, like we should be drawing in the gospel specifically at some point in our sermon so that everyone is always being pointed to Jesus. Um, try to explain the gospel itself in every sermon, even if it's just brief. If you're going through an Old Testament passage, um, uh, say you're preaching on Samson or something, it's not like it's explaining uh, the gospel itself, right? But there's so many inroads to the gospel. When you see um, Samson trusting in his own strength rather than trusting in the Lord, there's an invitation to talk about how we, um, we in our pride, we turn away from God. We try to do it ourselves, but because we're human, we sin, we fall short, but God is there to offer us grace and forgiveness and second chances. There's always a way to tie the gospel in and to invite readers to experience who Jesus actually is. So even if I'm preaching Old Testament passages, I like to find that tie in to who Jesus is, what he's done, um, because that's the invitation that we need, Um, not just to understand the Old Testament well, not just to live the Old Testament laws and become moral or something like that, follow a hero in the Old Testament. Um, What we need is to be transformed by the gospel, and that's Jesus laying down his life so that we can live. It's the forgiveness and the reconciliation and the healing that we experience in him. It's the restored relationship with God that we experience. So always bringing people back to that, giving them the opportunity to experience it. Frank Thomas asked the question, how does the message of this text give assurance of grace to the existential human condition of suffering? In other words, what good news does this text bring to the experiential suffering, tragedy, and evil in the world? These questions move exegesis beyond intellectual and philosophical sources to sound it in the actual life and experience of people. It's so important that we tie it to 
what people are experiencing, moving beyond how does the gospel speak into this to the lives of these really people, uh, the, these specific people that are right in front of us. I think basically um, every sermon becomes this opportunity to show people how relevant the gospel is to their life. Uh, this, the good news is pervasive. Um, and so modeling that for people like um, giving people a chance to hear, respond to the gospel, right? Every, every sermon could be a person's only opportunity to hear that and respond to that. But also, um, I believe that like we want to show people that the gospel really does answer every problem. It shape, should shape everything we do. It should shape every thought that we think about God, about ourselves, about the people around us. And so modeling that for people, helping them see how pervasive the gospel is, is so, so vital. Okay, final, last thing I want to say here, um, as we talk about crafting a sermon, there's obviously plenty I've given you to think about as you work through it. Um, I hope too you can see there's a lot that I've left open, a lot of subjectivity on how to do it, when to do it, um, all those kinds of things. And there's a lot of different approaches with it. But I would like to give a few pitfalls before I conclude, um, because I think there's a few things that um, could go wrong with the whole thing. And so I think we need to avoid lecturing in like an academic or the, uh, theoretical sense. So we, we talked about this a little bit in the last session. The purpose of a sermon is not just to inform or to lecture, to, to fill people's brains. And so um, making sure that like we're not just doing intellectual pre- uh, preaching where we're only concerned with like um, the letter itself and what it's saying and we're not connecting to the people that we're talking uh, to people about. We're not thinking only about their brains. We're thinking about... What are people experiencing? What are they? What are they living? Um, what's going on in their lives? Um, uh, we, man, we really want to like move people into a sense of like an encounter with God, rather than just lecturing in that academic sense. Um, the second thing I want to say that pitfall to avoid is avoid lecturing in the parental sense. Okay, so in an academic sense, don't just lecture to fill people's brains, but also in a parental sense, don't lecture like scolding people. Um, it's it's kind of easy to fall into like scolding in a sermon. Uh, especially if your passage com- includes a command or a rebuke or something like that, we can get real scoldy as we preach. But I would say pay attention not only to what the passage commands, but also to like the heart that's being conveyed in it. Um, so like, for example, if there's a command in the passage ag- against sexual immorality, ask why is that being commanded? Okay, because it's not just about don't do this. And if you've done this, you've messed up, but asking why, what, like, what does God have for us? What's the picture of the good life that God's calling us into? What's the healing that we could experience if we take this command seriously? So trying not to get scoldy um, or parental in how we do it, I think is important um, as we go through. Um, I think we need to pay attention to our congregation's life struggles, how they might relate to the passage, and we're really trying to help them connect to God's heart. Um, And so if a sermon feels like uh, the lecture of an angry parent or something, then it's not always the best way to help them connect to God. I think there's a place for tough sermons, like the prophets are full of those tough sermons. Um, but I do think we need to employ like skill, creativity, and like a real pastoral heart in how we present the things um, that we're doing. And really, we're not just trying to convey the rules of God to the people we're talking to. We're trying to draw them into the heart of God. Um, and so lecturing is, um, is dangerous, I think, both in the academic sense and in the parental sense. Um, I think the final thing I'd like to say is just making sure that as we... Um, crafter sermons will avoid giving priority to our own points and our own passage, uh, our own passions, I mean. Um, and so the whole thing is just like, man, sometimes um, we just have a sense of like the thing that I want to say. 
Um, David Helm talks about it like this. He says, um, you might have an incredibly strong doctrinal view, and that becomes the point of every passage that you preach, regardless of what the text is conveying. Don't do that, he's saying. Um, He says also, he's like, perhaps you draw a political conclusion or a social conclusion from therapeutic conclusions regarding uh, the mind, the spirit, and the text. He says, we superimpose our deeply held passions, plans, and our perspectives on the biblical text. And when we do so, the Bible becomes little more than a support for what we want to say. And so I'd just say, beginning and end, and kind of as you go through it, even as we're praying and asking God, what does he want to say? How does he want to guide us? Just asking, like, am I twisting this? Am I making this about what I want it to be? Um, That's a decent way to begin and end and ask God, like, what are you really trying to say? Do I need to step out of the way more here uh, than I'm doing? Um, All of those things are, are really important as we go. So, uh, there you go. There's some thoughts on um, how we craft our sermons. Um, like I said, it will differ depending on your context and what you're up to that week and everything else. Um, but but that will give you, I hope, a starting point for um, diving into what should be a really healthy practice. In the next session, I want to talk about preparing your heart to preach because that is just as vital, if not more so, um, in the work of preparing and delivering sermons.